You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. We are getting into the Word of God, so why don't you join with me to Philippians chapter 4. We are almost done, sadly enough, with the book of Philippians. We're in our last chapter. Uh, Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4 is our text today. So Philippians 4, 1 through 3 is our text. I'll be reading out of the NIV. If you don't have a Bible, we have it on the screen here, or you can share with someone next to you. But what I want to do is read this and then pray. It says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with, I don't really know what that is. Yudia, and I plead with Sintesh, I don't know. To, to be of the same mind in the Lord. I literally have no idea how to say those names. Yes, I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of the co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Let's pray. God, we thank you um, for this word this morning. Thank you, God, that you have us in this place. We ask, Lord, that your word would encourage us today, that it would apply to our own life, that we would see truths in it, And we'd be encouraged to apply it to our own lives. Would you show us your heart when it comes to relationships, how you desire unity? Would you teach us when there's disunity how we ought to resolve that? How we ought to to work towards unity in our relationships? God, would you show us where we may be in error? We want to be open to that. You're our heavenly father and you know what's best. We're your kids, and we want to receive from you today. And so help us to receive. Help us to receive, even if it's maybe hard to hear, knowing that it comes from a place of love. Your loving kindness is what always would lead us to repentance. But God, would you equip us today? Would you train our hands um, for what it means to be of one mind and one accord in the Lord with one another? Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not sure your upbringing or where you grew up, but I grew up in a pretty small area in like central California on the coast, Santa Barbara, Carpinteria, Goleta area. Grew up there until we moved here a couple years ago, and so for about 30 years of my life, I was in this really small, tight-knit community. By no means, this is an LA, a San Francisco, this is like a very small town, um, specifically Carpinteria, like 10,000 people are in it. And... uh, There's amazing bonuses to living and growing up in a small community, and also it can be really hard. If you know what I mean, it's that when things are good, and we're all good, everybody's good with each other, no drama, this is so awesome. Small community, you're you're supporting one another, everybody knows you, like let's do it. If there's drama, which there always will be, in a small community, it can be that much harder to do life and to be normal and not to run into someone you know. Or, and it's like really easy that everyone knows in a moment what's happening. So when I moved here to Hawaii, it feels the same. Everybody knows each other. Yes, there's a million people on this one island, but it's a little island and it feels like there's about 10,000 people. Right? Especially in 
the Christian world, it feels like, man, when things are good, like God is moving, there is such incredible power in the church on this island. But when there's drama in the church or drama in relationships in the midst of the church, uh, man, it's hard to escape it. It's hard to move on. It's hard to heal. It's hard to, because it's such a small community. I'm sure many of you can relate to that. But Paul here, he's speaking into some of this. He's speaking into the relational dynamics, if not the relational conflict, in the midst of a community. Specifically here, it's a faith community. It's a church in Philippi. And um, he's delivering this letter to them. And he's speaking into this relational conflict that's happening in the midst of their community. Again, I don't know how big the church in Philippi was, but Paul the Apostle in Rome, he's writing this letter, and these women are important enough, or the church is small enough, that just even their drama is enough for him to like note it in his letter. And whoever's reading this letter, it's like, dude, there's a lot of drama. I'm in prison like thousands of miles away. I hear about your drama. Can you fix it? That's what, like, it's, it's that big of a deal. Something's happened. Something is happening. And there's a couple themes that Paul brings up even in these couple verses that we're in right now. Number one, he starts off with talking about standing firm in the Lord. That's what he starts off this, this, this verse with, verse one. Then he talks about having relational unity and then also striving to resolve and reconcile the conflicts that are happening. So what I wanna do is just kind of walk through these three verses a bit and then kind of dig in a little bit more. Verse one. Right, Paul, again, very affectionate letter, letter. He calls them his brothers and sisters. Therefore, brothers and sisters, even at the end, my dear friends, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord. This idea of joy and crown here, this idea of crown is actually an ancient Greek word describing a crown given to an athlete that, have, that has won a race. It's a prize, it's like a trophy. And a crown is one of achievement. It's something that you've achieved, that you've worked hard towards. And so for Paul, seeing this church walk with Jesus, them growing in the Lord, them uh, being disciples of Christ, is a joy to him. And if anything, his goal or his desire or the reason why he's even writing this letter is so that they would not only grow in the Lord, they would live for the Lord, they would serve the Lord, and their life, if they do this, as they obey, as they follow Jesus. It gives Paul such pleasure. Literally says, it brings joy to my heart and I treasure you enough that your life in Christ is like a trophy that I've won. Like, like I want you to love Jesus so much, that's what I'm working for so hard, that, that the moment I hear you are, it's like a trophy that I've won in a race. And if you think about that, all of us, we have goals in life. Right, things that are important to us that we work hard towards, just like an athlete would work towards winning a race, we all have goals, right, that we're working towards. And when we meet that goal, we rejoice, or that's important enough, or, or when we finally get the job, or buy the house, or whatever it is the goal is, we could see it more or less like a trophy, like, oh my gosh, this is, this is what I've worked for, and so I've got it now. But if there's anything that I want to point out this morning in this first verse is let's let Paul's example of what's important to him encourage and stir us. 
Paul, if you just were here with us the last few weeks, actually laid down all his personal goals for the sake of the gospel and for others knowing Jesus. He was willing to lay down what his family wanted for him, his education, his aspirations, to obey Jesus. And his goal here is to see others come to know Christ too. That was his desire. That was his joy. And if he got it, that was the trophy that he was proud of. And so for us, I want that just to like, just kind of like to hit us a bit. Okay, what's our goal compared to Paul's? And is there maybe something else that should be motivating us other than what is leading our life right now? Are there people, are there certain things instead of, I'm not saying a house and a job and being successful is bad, but as Paul thought of others knowing Jesus in this way, shouldn't we be motivated in the same way for others to know Christ as the greatest goal? I think, I, think, I think it should be our goal more than we think. We should be motivated out of the love that we have, that, that we have experienced ourselves. we should be motivated so that others would know that same love in Jesus Christ. Paul here says, you guys are my joy, you guys are my crown. Brothers and sisters, dear friend, stand firm in the Lord. Again, this letter is all about exhortation and encouragement. Paul always is wanting to remind them of how they should be living and what they should be doing. And a lot of his letters to churches are actually safeguards. They're safeguards to protect them from maybe believing a false doctrine or bad theology. You know, in in context, in chapter one, we see that uh, the landscape of Philippi was filled with false prophets and false teachers teaching things contrary to the true gospel. And so here, once again, Paul is encouraging and exhorting the church here to stand firm in Christ. That means to stand firm in good theology and good doctrine and good practice with good morals, firm in their identity as sons and daughters of God. We talked about this briefly last week, that your environment and our atmosphere and the people around us have a huge effect on us. We talked about in high school, your friend group, you were probably like them. You you formed to whatever they formed. Maybe we're a little stronger now, but we are very susceptible to our environment. Our environment being now, it's media, it's social media, it's what you read, it's what you input. It's what you input into you, shapes you. And so just like Paul is saying, stand firm, I believe that this could be for us to be, hey, stand firm as Christians in 2019. Stand firm in good theology, in your identity in Christ, with good morals. Don't be swayed to just fall into the pattern of the world. This is so easy to do. Everything else is whispering, if not screaming, something contrary. So much of media, so much of culture, so much of of film and so much of music, so much of it, not all of it, but so much of it is contrary to the promises and the character and the commandments and the goodness of God. And because we're in this world, we're easily shaped by it. But I believe that the exhortation in the same way for the Philippians could be for us to hold fast, to stand firm to the promises that we have in this book. 
Don't depart from God's character and his nature and his goodness. Unfortunately, being a pastor, you get to see and you get to know and maybe you're even involved a lot when people leave the church. And sadly, I've seen it too much where people have succumbed to the world and the way to the world and they get so jaded by church, by Christians, by hypocrisy, whatever it is, or just they just stop coming. And all of a sudden, they leave fellowship, they leave community, they leave the scriptures, they leave prayer, they leave fellowship, and all of a sudden, what was warned about, they've all of a sudden swayed, and they failed to listen, they failed to believe, and they failed to trust. And as a pastor, I've seen this too much, and I want to encourage us. I want to beg us, let this not be true of us. Let this not be true of you. Let that not be your story. I once went to church. I once believed. But, 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 and all of a sudden, we're not in standing firm in the Lord. If anything, we're not trusting and believing the Lord anymore. But for Paul, the fact that the Philippians were standing fast in the Lord was his trophy. And he says that. You guys standing firm in the Lord are like a joy and a crown to me. And then he goes, that's good, but you got to deal with some drama that's going on. He says, I plead, and and he calls out these two women. I'm sorry, I don't know their names. These two women are in conflict, and he says, I plead with you to be of the same mind in the Lord. And so what we can gather here is apparently these two women were the source of some sort of quarrel in the church. But again, instead of Paul taking a side... He says, he simply says, be of the same mind in the Lord. He doesn't try to sort out their theology. He didn't try to get in the middle of it. Just from afar, he said, hey, be of the same mind. In other words, whatever the dispute was about, they had a greater common ground in Jesus Christ. That was Paul's point. Remember the main thing. Whether he knew the details or not, his point was that everything else was less important. Whatever gripe, whatever issue, whatever difference they were fighting about was less important to their common ground in Jesus Christ. And so Paul is pleading from afar, seeing a relational conflict, not about destroy, but negatively affect a community. If you've been a Christian for more than two days, you would know this happens in the church. This happens in the church. It happens in relationships. All of a sudden, we start bickering, fighting, differences, miscommunication about something, but we fail to remember the main thing. What brings us together is Jesus Christ. It's not that those things aren't important. It's not that they're, you know, you didn't get wronged, but they're not as important to the main thing, that we are of one mind in one accord, same mind in Jesus Christ. So then Paul says, He's speaking to these ladies. He says, please, beg, I beg you, I plead with you to, to fix this. Verse 3, he says, I ask you, my true companion, whoever's kind of reading this letter, we don't really know, help these women. Help them since they have, they've been by me in the side, in the cause of the gospel. So what we see here is that these women have been alongside Paul, and he's saying to this, this, this someone, this companion, he's instructing them to help reconcile these women, almost like a mediator, a peacemaker. 
He's pleading for reconciliation and restoration, and he's asking others in the church to help foster this. So it seems like here, these women were were servants in the church. Paul knew them because they had served alongside them. In many ways, what he's saying is they're they're awesome. They're just good qualities. They love the Lord. Um, They've been with me. They've been in the trenches with me. But there's a relational conflict that's happening, and it's negatively affecting the community, and it's actually probably making them more ineffective in ministry. And so he's pleading to them personally. He's pleading for someone else to step in as a peacemaker. And then he says, you know, the rest of my fellow workers there who are names are written in the book of life. Speaking of Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, the book of life, those, are, those who are saved, those who are redeemed, those who are the Lord's. He's pleading. He says, you guys are a faith community. You guys have been saved. There is a lot to hope for. Heaven's coming, right? Last, last week, we talked about we're citizens of heaven. We're only temporary residents here. Paul's trying to like bring them out of the weeds for a second because right, so many arguments differences, relational conflicts is because we've gotten to the weeds. When we finally realized what it was about, we're like, that was so silly. I can't even believe I was mad at you for that. Paul is trying to bring this church out of the weeds. You guys are citizens of heaven. You've been, your your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. You have the same Lord. Be reconciled. He's trying to say your problems compared to your identity pales in comparison. This is what he's saying. This is what he's saying here. He's pleading with them in light of who they are in Christ to be reconciled to one another despite the conflict. But here's the deal. Relational peace is maybe the hardest thing that we'll have to deal with in life. I mean, it's really up there with like the the loss of a loved one and like, like huge grief in us, relational loss, relational conflict. Relational drama is up there as the hardest things in the world to work out and work through and seek reconciliation. At least it can be. And as much as we wish this wasn't true, having relational discord and drama or issues is a part of life. Some of us don't want to believe that. Some of us grew up and from an early age we understood that. Some of us are just figuring that out now or... uh, As the older you get, you realize that this is an absolute normal part of life. But here's the deal. Relational restoration. So when there's conflict, when there's disunity, when there's a broken relationship, relational restoration, fixing that relationship, is actually at the heart of the gospel. It's the core of what we believe is true about God. This is the purpose why God sent his son to earth was actually to redeem and reconcile humanity back to Christ. Sin had broken a perfect relationship. It had broken it. It had separated us uh, us from God. And so what God sent his son to do was to, at the core, fix a broken relationship. The Lord's heart is and always will be unity in relationships. We actually see this in the nature of God and in his being that God himself is a relational God. He's three in one. We believe in the Trinity, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
They are three distinct people, but with one essence. Even in the nature of God, he himself is in perfect relationship, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We see this in Genesis 1, chapter 26, when God made us. It said, then God said, let us make man in our image. That us is referring to the Trinity. We see that God created us in his image to be relational. God created us to be relational creatures. By nature, we're to be relational and function in community as he is. So it's actually... Not a good thing, not okay. Can't just leave it be. To be disunified, out of relationship, not of the same mind, not of the same accord, especially inside of the church. Much of scripture actually continues with this thought and with with, with these truths. That we ought to love God and be in good relationship with God and that we're to love and be in good relationship with one another. Right, the New Testament Paul's letters, especially this one, brings up the idea of being one mind, in unity, ministering to one another. What's important to God is for his people to be in relational unity with one another. It's really important to him because it's, it's, it's at the core of God's nature It's true to who he is. And because we're image bearers of God, living into the image of God, we too are supposed to care and strive and fight for and pray for relational unity. Right? I'm just going to bring up a few verses, but it speaks all about it. 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Paul again, speaking to the church in Corinth. Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. He's speaking to that group of Christians, that church, those people. In Romans, doing the same. If it is possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with who? Everyone. First Peter goes on, chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to, you this, uh, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Lastly, 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. When we're in relationship, friend, spouse, parent, kid, whatever relationship it is, we are confronted with our and theirs in our relationship, sin, mistakes, hurt, And we're most aware of our own sin or someone else's when we're in relationship with them. But here's the deal. That that could either be really negative, like, yep, that's why I'm an introvert. That's why I don't like people. That's why I'm not in a relationship. That's why I'm single. Whatever it is. I don't want to deal with that. I've done it before. But you can look at it this way. That's true. But also, our relationships is the greatest theater for the gospel to be portrayed. It has the greatest effect. It's the hardest, 
but it has the greatest fruit and the greatest effect, and it's the greatest platform or theater for the gospel to be practically displayed. We'll get into that in a second. But we all have our stories. Some are way heavier and harder and sensitive than others, and I'm, I'm aware of that. Right? We've all, maybe not all of us, but we've had maybe a falling out with a friend, someone we were close to, we don't talk to anymore. Um, there could be relational discard, discourse excuse me, with our family, um, with your friends, with a romantic relationship, with your spouse, with church leadership. Totally happens. There's not one of us in here that haven't had some or all of this. And obviously, there's a variety of different outcomes, right? We all, we all don't want that. We all don't want all those to break down, or we don't want drama, or we don't want discord. But, but we might deal with it, or it may, has, it may have had different outcomes. This is what I mean. Many of us have had the privilege and, and just testimony of God to see God, the beauty of rebuilding and re reconnecting after a disagreement or hurt. Right after a marriage that was failing and all of a sudden through the grace and the power of God is now restored and healthy and good and right. There's nothing better than that. All right, when, when there's a falling out between friends or family, when there is rebuilding, when there is reconciliation, there's nothing better. But also many of us may still have the pain, regret, or our relationship is still broken. And it's because, you know, many of us or many other, the other party have dealt with it differently. If you're like me, you want to avoid conflict at all costs. Just, just the last thing in the world that you want to deal with is dealing with a relational conflict. Some of you are like, nope, I'm good. Let's go. Let's do this thing. So if you're like me, you want to run the worst ever. I want to avoid this at all costs. But some of you are fighters. I'm like more like the flea. Like when it comes to relational drama, like I'm not going to talk about it. No, it wasn't a big deal. Don't worry about it. Like, or I just won't hang out with you anymore. That's like naturally where I want to go. But some of you are like, no, let's, I'm going to tell you what I mean right now. I'm going to fight you right here. Right? There's the two opposite sides of the spectrum maybe. But there is a better way forward. Then those two. Look what Paul's doing here. He's asking everyone to say, what do you have in common? It's Christ. Let the other things go. Be unified under Christ. Now, in Christian relationships, if the two parties are Christian or, or have any understanding, any belief in God, we both should have this common understanding, right? We both should be working towards reconciliation because we believe these things about God. So we both should be working towards reconciliation. But if you're not in, if you, if you like, say you're a Christian and the person that's offending you is not, well, then you're the only godly example in that relational discord. Not to put like more responsibility on us, but at the same time, it requires more of us to do the right thing because we have that responsibility by the power of the spirit, knowing God's heart and God's intentions that we have to go about this differently. Hopefully if it's, both are Christians. Hopefully you're both trying and somewhat to do this. But what I want to do, sorry, my mic, um, is actually give some practical tips 
of how to, of conflict resolution. Uh, these are super simple, super simple, excuse me, super practical. There's way more. I'm going to give a precursor. I am not doing justice to conflict resolution. There are books written about this. There's, there's, that's why therapists exist and counselors. There are like doc, you get a doctorate for this type of thing, master's degree, whatever. But this is a start. I want to leave us with something, right? Something practical, especially for those of us that are like in the midst of it. I am in relational discord, and I'm thinking about the person right now. I, I'm not going to ask, but half of you would raise your hands. <laughs> you raise your hand anyway. This is a start. It's important to remember before I get into I have five, five points. They're quick, but five points. Important things to remember in any conflict resolution. There are always two parties. When you're in a conflict, you always think you're right, they're wrong. That's the only party that's wrong. We have to remember there's always two parties to any conflict. Number two, we always, sorry, these aren't my five points. I don't know why I just said two. This is a precursor still. There's always two parties. There's always hope. I know you're saying, no, no, I've been hurt too many times. There's always hope in Christ. So there's always hope for that relationship to be restored. But it will always take work. It always takes work, probably more work than you want to put in. But it always is worth it. That's my precursor. There's always two parties, but there's always hope. It's always going to take work, but it's always worth it. Okay, here's the five basic keys to conflict resolution. I think wisdom would say. Number one is listen. Oh, man, if we only just listened more. If we only just listened to the person that we disagreed with more, not interrupting them, not defending ourselves, not lashing out. Guys, this would be so much better for us if you did this in, your, in our marriages. <laughs> just listen. When it comes to any disagreement with any person, number one, let them speak. Listen to what they have to say. Even if you want to do everything and just react in such a, like a lashed out way and justify and defend yourself. Number one is listen. For them, for the other party, that is their perspective and their perception is real. It is so important that we remember that. Because what we're all, all, all we're thinking about is we're right. That's not what I did. You're wrong. Anybody else like me? This is literally the things I say. But the number one, when we have a conflict with anyone, is to listen. Their perspective is real, and we need to try to respect that. That mine is, is real to me. Yours is real to you. And it's so important, hear this, to respond and not react. There's a difference. Responding is saying, I've heard you. Like, whether you want to say sorry right there or not, but you, you're respectfully hearing what they have to say, saying thank you. If, if you're really good, you can respond there. I always would say, if it's big enough, hey, let me have some time to think and pray about this. But you need to respond respectfully. What I normally do is not that. I don't respond respectfully. I react React is I'm going to react because I'm triggered by something that you said. Anybody else know what I'm talking about? Okay, good. So once you've listened, 
right? Be quick to listen, slow to speak, biblical, listen. Then it's, okay, I need to pray about and I need to seek some counsel about what was just said to me. If you have the time and the ability, like unless you have to respond for whatever reason right then, which honestly, if there's always time to just cool down or just to like process, but more importantly, to take those things that were just said to you or the conflict or the, the different idea or whatever it is, is to take those things to the Lord. Lord, this is what happened. This is how it makes me feel. Like, this is why I think it's wrong. Like, speak, communicate with Christ. Lay them at his feet. Ask for help. What's so helpful is to have counselors, right? Wise counsel in our life too. People that know us, people that are gonna be honest with us, that we trust, that can say, hey, this is what's happening with so-and-so. This is what they said. What do you think? What's your thoughts? What do you think I should do? Is that true? Is that not true? Like, is that really true about me? Or where do you think I'm in the ill? It's so important to listen, respond respectfully, pray, search my heart, Lord, ask for counsel. Number three, allow some time to pass and be patient. Most of the time, personally, where I get in trouble is I, I react I don't respond in respect. I react negatively because I'm emotional. I haven't, and I'm, and I'm triggered. And so if I had just let time go on, I'd be more clear-minded, I'd be more calmed down, and I'd be able to respond in a better way. It is always good that after we've listened, after we've prayed, after we've seeken counsel, to allow some time to go on, to clear our mind, and to be patient knowing that it might just take time to fix this broken relationship. Again, I'm a guy, so I can only really speak as a guy right now. But for us, at least a lot of us that I know, we, we're fixers by nature. And so if we have a relational conflict with someone, we just want to say, well, what's it going to take to fix it? Just give me, how do I fix that? Or even when we're brought to a problem by someone else, instead of just listening and hearing and responding, we're like, okay, let me tell you how to fix that. Let me tell you how to fix your problem. And most, if most people go like, I don't want to hear how you have to fix it right now. Like, I don't want that. I just want you to listen. So it's always good to be time and patient. And then when you respond, not, not the initial response, but when you actually respond, it's so important that you, that you do respond in truth with grace. What's going to go really far is if you apologize, whether you think... You're at fault or not to start with, by grace, thinking the best of that other person, apologizing, and in truth, not, not, you know, hiding how you feel, not hiding how it made you feel, but in truth, with grace, presenting a response, but a response that doesn't chew their head off, doesn't victimize yourself, but you respond in grace, respectfully to what happened. It's so important that we don't just go, okay, I've had the time to think, and now I have my seven punches and my seven missiles that I'm going to throw, and I'm going to break your darts, and I'm going to put your, my darts in you. But instead, we apologize in truth and grace. We respond that way. Again, I know I'm like dumbing down relational conflict. I get that. But then lastly that we extend and strive for forgiveness. So here's the deal. You, you may not, 
there's a good chance you, you guys both still aren't agreeing. That, that's best case, but a lot of times, that's maybe not going to happen. And we may need to adjust our expectations to go, you know what? This relationship may not be the same. We may not even come to a common ground, but I am going to extend and strive for forgiveness. Again, if both parties do that, that's what's supposed to happen. But we need as Christians to endeavor to walk in, extend, and strive for forgiveness. Whether we feel like we're in the wrong or not, to just, in truth and grace, extend and walk in forgiveness. And here's the deal. Only after we walk in grace and forgiveness is unity really able to be achieved. If... if until that happens, until we extend grace, empathy, mercy, and forgiveness, unity isn't going to happen. And again, unity may look different, right? We may think, like, especially inside the church, when we have, like, disunity, oh, my gosh, if it's not the same thing and you're my best friend again and we hang out all the time, then we're in disunity. That's not true. It may just look different. What I want to do is save us from like black and whites. Like I didn't fully get what I wanted, so now we're disunified. I didn't get, they didn't apologize to me. They didn't say sorry. They didn't admit fault. But here's the deal. Here's where it comes down to. You can't control what someone else does or how they feel. Man, I wish I learned this like 30 years ago. You can't control what someone else does or how they feel, but we have the power, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to have the ability to take responsibility and control our own actions and our own thoughts. Remember what Scripture told us? As far as it depends upon us, be at peace. It doesn't say, make someone else be at peace with you. It didn't say that. It says, as far as it depends upon us, we should be at peace. And so here's the deal. Here's where it all comes down. Conflict resolution starts with us first. I rarely think that way. And I'm convicted to do so. When a conflict arises, when a disagreement happens, when someone brings up a different idea than I had, immediately, right, our response should be, you're wrong. It's all on you. You need to get right. You need to say sorry to me. You need to change. But what scripture is actually telling us is it actually starts with us. The way in which we respond, we treat, we apologize, we extend grace, that is actually going to lend to reconciliation, not trying to force someone into reconciliation with us. It's a big difference. Our call as a church if you listen to our Vision Sunday, what we really feel as a church that we're supposed to be called to this year is a family committed to the Father's business. And as a family, we're going to have stuff. We're going to have conflict. We're going to have relational, relational drama. I'm sure we do now with each other. Or maybe not in this building, but maybe it's with someone else outside of this building right now. But what God is very clearly calling us to, I believe, as reality, Honolulu, is to operate as a healthy, Jesus-filled family. Not to just cover up, not to just move on, not to just not deal with it, not just to try to avoid the person anymore. 
but to endeavor to be agents of reconciliation, demonstrating the gospel by how we interact with each other. And now we all know this, but the psalmist declares how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. God is pleased, it honors him when we strive for uh, relational reconciliation. And so church, I know this is a start and there's a lot more, but I pray that we would endeavor to be relationally unified with one another. Amen? Amen? Amen, let's pray. God, we come before you and we're thankful that you've given us the Holy Spirit, that we don't just have to try harder and do better, but you actually give us the power to do this. God, you desire to make us more like you, and so God, I pray that you would make us more gracious. I pray that you would make us more humble. I pray that you would make us willing to apologize, that you would help us, you would equip us to maybe how to do relationships better. I'm the first to admit, Lord, that I, I need help. I need to do these better. I need, I need to do these things like you would. And God, I pray specifically for those of us in here that we feel like, um, man, we're, we're in the middle of a relational discord with someone that we love dearly, and it's really painful, I pray, Lord, that you would be near to us right now and you would give us real wisdom, real wisdom of how to go forward. Maybe, maybe it's ways in which we need to apologize or maybe it's questions we need to ask or maybe we need more time or maybe we haven't even prayed about it. God, would you illuminate in our lives areas that we have fallen short, but by your grace and your power, would you strengthen us Thank you that you're a father that just wants to help his kids get along. And so God, as our, as our father, just would you, would you continue to teach us, strengthen us how to be your kids in the midst of a really broken, messy world, in the, in the midst of a messy family. We pray that you would show us how to live for you, for your glory. In 